Well, when, when I first felt called to plant a church way back in 97, one of the verses that became a big verse for me was Romans chapter 15, verse 20. Romans chapter 15, verse 20, and it simply says this. It has always been, this is Paul talking, and he says, it has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known so that I would not be building on someone else's foundation. It's always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known so that I wouldn't be building on somebody else's foundation. Now, that makes a lot of sense, right? You can kind of understand. It makes a lot of sense to me because two weeks ago, uh, about three or four of us drove down to Lapine to help a friend of ours work on his house. And our friend, if he had to do it all over again, would have just knocked the house over and started from scratch. But it was the first house he and his wife had owned, and they started right from the beginning trying to remodel. And now about a year later, he's still working on it. And I quickly came to agree with him that he should have just, I still think he should knock it over uh, and start from scratch. When you start from scratch, you can get a plan in your head of what you really want to see happen. And you can lay that foundation and you can frame it out and you can go at your dream or your vision or your idea rather than trying to back up and take away and subtract and bend and make compromises like you would do if you're remodeling or building on an existing foundation. So what Paul's saying here is kind of obvious. If you have the choice of trying to redo something or be able to start from scratch, it's better if you can start from scratch. Now, what do we make of that in America in the year 2000? Is there really anywhere that I could go where nobody has a conception of Jesus? They've never heard of him. They've never developed any views or opinions or ideas. You just can't go anywhere. The books that come out, the movies come out, everything touches on it. In our, in our culture, you would hear just about Jesus because of the negative things out there. The lawsuits to get in God we trust off of the money or different things like that. You're going to hear about Jesus or about God. You're going to have some kind of an opinion. So I can't really do what Paul did. I can't find, in America at least, a group that has no background with Jesus. But I can do something similar. I can plant a church. In planting a church, you're not dealing with one individual or one little group in their mindset with regards to Jesus, but you can deal with individual people or little groups of people in their mindset to organized religion. You can kind of go new at this whole idea of an established church organized religion, institutional religion. And that's got a bad rap too. But you can kind of start over there and say, how can we look like culture in terms of speaking the same language? When Hudson Taylor went over to China, he dressed like the Chinese and he learned to speak like the Chinese. How can we look like culture and just be normal and be authentic yet still proclaim faithfully the gospel of Jesus Christ? And starting a church gives me the ability to do that, to lay a clean foundation. 
And that foundation looks like this. I use the word commitments. We've got four commitments at Antioch. And I use the word commitments for a reason. Because I, I have a prejudice against the word values. I don't like the word values. Because to me, it, it doesn't ever really mean anything. I value a good cheeseburger. There's a lot of things I value, but it doesn't define me. But when I use the word commitment, it's something I'm leaning hard into. It's something I'm leveraging myself towards. I'm committed to it. And that defines me. So we've got four commitments. And the first one is just this. We're going to be Christ-centered. We're going to be Christ-centered. In America, we think that it's in the Bible that God helps those who help themselves. You know, that was actually Ben Franklin. But we think that's a Bible verse. And we live in a self-help culture where religion is just seen as one other self-help endeavor. Where we can go get principles or ideas to add to our life that somehow potentially might be that missing element or that magic bullet that will bring the gratification or the happiness that I want because in America we're lonely and we're depressed and we're, we're frustrated and we're grieved and we're lost in a lot of ways. And so we go to these self-help things to try and help ourself. It's really where self-help is, help the self. But that's not going to work. It's a doomed or failed endeavor. Jesus Christ came, if for no other reason than this, that we can't help ourselves. We cannot do for ourselves what needed to be done or what needs to be done. The essence of the kingdom of God is just simply this. Jesus doing for me what I cannot do for myself. And if a church does not stand on Christ in all that it does, Jesus even looked at this book or the Old Testament scriptures and said, all of the scriptures point to me. I'm the linchpin. Without me, none of this matters. I'm the one that's going to make it effective. And so for a church, we've got to stand on Christ and treat him like the main thing because he is the main thing. And so we're going to be Christ-centered. There's a movie that I watched back in the 80s. The 80s were kind of my generation, uh, the high school years. And I still don't quite understand it. It's one of those anomalies, the 80s. The, the fashion was an anomaly. The music is still an anomaly. Uh, but in the 80s, there was this movie called Ferris Bueller's Day Off. And in this movie, Ferris played by Matthew Broderick, is basically skipping school. That's the day off part. And he's trying to run from the, the whole truant officer type of idea, not get caught. And he's taking the whole day off. And his buddy, ha, uh, his buddy's dad has a car collection, vintage cars. And a friend of mine actually knew what car it was, but it was a 1961 Ferrari GT California and this car, this red car, they decided to, to take. His friend didn't want to do it, but Ferris is kind of the leader and, and encourages him that we should take this car. And the friend says, no, my dad knows exactly how many miles are on this car. No problem, says Ferris. We'll come back, we'll put the car on jacks, put it in reverse, and we'll peel the miles off the car. <laughs> right? 
So they go around all day, they come back, they jack the car up, they put it in reverse, uh, and they put a little stick on there, hold the accelerator down, and they're sitting around waiting for the miles to come off. And pretty soon one of them goes and looks at it and realizes miles don't come off the car. You can't put it in reverse and undo what's been done. And that, to me, is kind of the idea with sin. We can't find a way to atone or rewind or undo or mask over what is wrong with us or what is wrong with how we've lived. We can't do it. And the only person that can do something about it is Jesus Christ. And so we stand on Christ. We're going to be a Christ-centered church. We're committed to that. Second thing we're committed to is this. Authentic spirituality. Authentic spirituality. If you'll turn to Acts, Acts chapter 11. We got most of these commitments from the church of Antioch, the original church of Antioch in the book of Acts. And we certainly got this one from there. So let's just read what kind of happened in this early church of Antioch in the book of Acts. Acts 11, starting in verse 19. Acts 11, verse 19. And this is what is written. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen, remember Stephen was stoned in Jerusalem, they traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, Antioch, telling the message, only to Jews. So they're being scattered across the countryside and they're going to their like ethnic group, their kinsmen, and they're telling them what has happened. Now some of them, verse 20, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene went to Antioch and began to, began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. And the Lord's hand was with them and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. So they went to these Greeks, these non-Jews, in Antioch and started sharing the, the good news of Jesus with them. And the result was a bunch of these people came to believe in Christ and were added to this little community in Antioch. Good news? Seems like good news, right? Well, here's the rub. Jews are not supposed to eat with Greeks back then. It wasn't kosher. So now you've got a problem. You shared the message. They responded to the message. You're clapping and applauding. Look at all this great news. And all of a sudden, you've got a problem. What do we do? We're not supposed to because of the law, because of our traditions. We're not supposed to eat with these people. Yet they just came and accepted Christ. And here they are. What do we do? And it was such a huge issue that we read in the book of Acts that a whole council met in Jerusalem to try and figure out that problem. And they wrote, they sent uh, uh, Silas back, uh, back with Paul to deliver the message, the verdict. And they simply said, and I'll paraphrase, grace trumps the law. Grace wins out over traditions. People matter more than religiosity. And they said, eat with those people. Now in America, 
and I think all through church history, we've had similar issues come to play. Is it going to be this kind of music, which we've always liked, or this kind of music, which some of us like, and how do we make these two things work together? Traditions or grace? Putting the emphasis on people or on religiosity or what we do in our meetings. Our commitment is authentic spirituality. That we measure spirituality by grace, by our love for people. And we always want to be committed to not building up traditions in this church called Antioch that are going to be a barrier to fellowship. The people matter more to us. We might like something for five years or ten years or two months, who knows. But it's not more important than the people. We'll set it aside. Remember, we're going to stand on Christ, not on tradition. Grace triumphs over law. The next thing is this. We're committed to inclusive community. We're committed to being an inclusive community. What do I mean by that? Well, when I was a youth pastor, I would have parents come up to me on a regular basis and be bothered by something. And I always knew where that conversation was going. Little Johnny or little Susie wasn't being included, and so the mom or the dad, it was usually the mom, (laughs) was coming in, and they were complaining, going to complain, I always knew it, about the cliques in the youth group. Johnny's not being included because your youth group is cliquish. And so I developed a response to this. The minute I saw it coming and, and someone would say, your youth group is cliquish, I would immediately sit up and go, praise God. And, you know, all of a sudden the eyes would pop wide open. That wasn't the response they were looking for. I'd say, praise God. And they would look at me, what do you mean? If there's clicks in my youth group that means some of these kids have found the best thing there is in life they've found community we were made for community and some of these kids have found it praise god that there's clicks in my youth group and then i would look at the woman or or the mom or the dad i'll be nice and i would say But it sounds like what we need to do is just disciple these kids to share that community. I'm not going to go in and and throw a hand grenade and destroy this wonderful community that six or seven or ten kids have. That's a wonderful thing. I'm going to go in and try and disciple them, try and coach them to be bigger and better people so that they would share what they've got. We all remember in high school that there was an in-crowd, and that in-crowd was magnetic. I moved around a lot. My dad was in the Navy. I had the, the opportunity to be in, in the in-crowd and out of the in-crowd. I've seen it from both sides. And I have always been fascinated by the magnetic draw or pull of the in-crowd. Everybody wants that kind of connection, that kind of fellowship. Everybody wants it. It's why we love watching Seinfeld and Friends and, you know, and Cheers, if you want to go all the way back to Cheers. There's something magnetic about community. And the world finds community, they don't need to share it. 
I've got everything I need. I've got my tight group here. What Christ counsels us to do, what he taught his disciples to do, was instead of putting your hand out and being exclusive, was to, to flip your hand around, wave those people in, and be inclusive. We've got great community at Antioch. We want to share it. We want other people to know what it feels like to be a part of a great community. The early church in Antioch, when they went after the Greeks, were being inclusive. And they were coming from a heritage of exclusivity. And so we're committed, likewise, to try and be inclusive. We want to have such tight community that it's magnetic, that anyone that comes near us wants to be a part of that. And then we want to shock them by actually letting them be a part of that. Because that's pretty rare to find, isn't it? We always are trying to find a way to burrow into an existing community. We're always seeing a community out there that's desirable, that we want to be a part of, and we try and strategize or brainstorm, how can I get an invite in? Who's going to pull me in? How do I be where they're at? How do I get to the point where they'll accept me? I remember when I first became a Christian, I spent literally three months by myself in my dorm room. I lost all my friends. And there's something really fascinating about becoming a Christian in your fourth year of college at a big secular university. You, you learn that the only people looking for friends are freshmen. By the time kids are seniors, they already have their friends. And so I was a fourth year senior looking for some Christian friends. And the only Christians that were looking for friends back were freshmen. And when you're a senior, I mean, it just doesn't go together, right? And there was a guy by the name of Brian Kahn. I ended up being in his wedding, and I haven't talked to him for years. But he will always be one of the very important people in my life because he was a senior, only had uh, about four months left. I had a couple of years left. I spent six years in undergrad. But Brian Kahn was going into the military, only had a couple, uh, military, only had a couple months left of school, was a part of a wonderful, tight-knit community of seniors that had been with each other for four years. And Brian relentlessly pursued me to pull me in, to include me, to give me that invitation, to force his friends to accept me, and I eventually became a part of that community. Without Brian, I never would have had that. I want a church that's got a bunch of Brians. When I see that, I applaud it. When I don't see it, I call it out. We, we were with this week, I was with a bunch of the college and career age students, 20-somethings, and we were at the movies. We saw this wonderful movie, or it wasn't that wonderful, it was, it was a movie called Gridiron Gang, and it was all about team and community. And we walk out, and I was so excited because it's freezing cold, and it's late at night, it's about midnight, and there's 17 of us, we were about the only 17 in the movie, it was a Tuesday night, and there's 17 of us standing around in a circle. And I thought to myself, they don't realize that what they just got excited about on the screen individuals giving up their individuality to become a team, what they just saw on the screen, they're actually living out. And so I was so excited about it, and then I saw this one guy who's older, and he kind of was next to this guy that was brand new, 
and didn't really seem like he wanted to talk to him too much. And he kind of took a half step forward and started engaging everybody else. And I look over, and the new guy is boxed out. And there's two people standing. He's boxed out by himself. And I got frustrated, and I thought, well, I can take this guy and maybe pull him over and coach him. Say, hey, do you see what just happened? And then I thought, nah. And so I just kind of real loudly just called it out. said, hey, man, if you move in just another inch or two, you'll completely box him out, the new guy. And I said it so everybody could hear. And what was great about it was the new guy, it relieved the tension he was feeling. He kind of got to chuckle along with everybody or or give a big exhale. And where he was fidgeting kind of right before that, all of a sudden he was now part of the group again. But I'll call it out. I want Brian's in my church that pull people in. We're committed to being an inclusive community. The last thing here is we're committed to being missional. M-I-S-S-I-O-N-A-L. There you go. Missional. Purposeful. We're committed to not just huddling and staying in one place. We're committed to being a movement. We want to make a difference. We want to change a lot of things, but culture for one, right? There's a movie that's called Pay It Forward. And I made the mistake one time of talking about it on a Christmas Eve service, and it's one of my favorite movies, and I talked about it, went home right afterwards, put it on with my parents. It was Christmas Eve, and they were like, ah, we've never seen this movie, and you talked about it, let's watch it. And I put it on, and it starts out with this real racy scene, and I I just utterly panicked. It's like, oh, no, half the church is going to see that. So I'm not fully endorsing the film, only partially there, so that I won't get in trouble. But the, the essence of this movie is you've got a young boy who's grown up without a dad, and he gets put in the classroom of a teacher who's trying to give an assignment to these kids of come up with a way to change the world or make a difference in your world or do something big. And he doesn't realize, but what he's done is he's unlocked this kid. He's turned him loose. And this kid takes the assignment to heart and goes after it in a way that no one else has ever gone after it. And his idea was this. You take somebody that's helpless, they cannot help themselves, and you help them. And they're not allowed to pay you back, they have to pay it forward. See, that's the name of the movie, Pay It Forward. And they have to do it to three people. And the people they pay it forward to have to be people that are in a desperate situation, cannot help themselves, And when they receive this blessing from somebody, this grace, when they're graced, they can't pay it back. They have to pay it forward to three more people. You guys all know what a pyramid scheme is, right? It begins to just exponentially grow. And so this kid does it. He takes in a homeless man into his garage. The mom freaks out. And the homeless man kind of gets tracked through the movie and he's paying it forward. And you see all these different things kind of happening as people receive grace and then pay it forward. To me, that's the gospel. Christ came and did for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Remember what we were talking about? 
And then when he's done with that, here's what he says to us. You can't pay it back. I don't need anything from you. I'm not like the pagan gods of antiquity where when you brought a sacrifice, it was a food sacrifice, and they believed somehow that that food would be transposed up into the, the heavenly realms, and that's actually how this, this god or this deity that didn't have to work, we worked for him, was getting his food. Jesus isn't like that. He's, we don't, he doesn't need food from us. He doesn't need us to work for him because he can't work for himself. He doesn't need us to pay him back anything, give him any kind of money. What he wants is us to be touched enough by his grace that we have what's called appreciation well up inside of us. Appreciation, love. And we all know what appreciation is. It's something that can't be contained. Appreciation shows up in our body language. Appreciation changes the way we see our day. And appreciation wants to be made known. It wants to come out. It wants to be verbalized. It wants to be acted on. It's like trying to pack mud around a, a little bubbling brook coming out of, of the ground. You can pack mud around it all you want, but you know eventually that water is going to come through again, isn't it? Appreciation's like that. Somehow, some way, it's going to come out. And what Jesus wants us to do with our appreciation that ought to be there is that instead of trying to pay him back, we would just pay it forward. We would be missional. We would try to make a difference. We would try to do for others what he did for us. Remember the parable where the king forgives the debts of this guy that, that owes him more money than he could ever pay? And the guy runs out, and what does he promptly do? He goes and puts his hands around the neck of a guy that owes him like 10 bucks. Where's my 10 bucks? And the king calls him back in and says, what in the world are you doing? Jesus came and did for us what we can't do. He wants us to pay it forward. I don't know about you, but I get into this habit. It's a bad habit. Where I look at the world, where I look at culture, and I get this emotion inside, and, and this is what it is, and I just, I just... It's lost. And I get mad, frustrated. Something's wrong. It's not the way it's supposed to be. It's lost. And I just want to turn my back on it, right? Things aren't the way they used to be. I can't believe this stuff's going on. Man, culture's just messed up. So I want to turn my back on it and walk away, right? Like, like, culture is somehow responsible for itself being messed up and I can kind of fold my arms and just look down my nose at culture. Man, how could you be like that, culture? Well, guess what? Um, culture's always been lost. It's always been messed up. Show me a time in Jesus' day or since when culture wasn't messed up, when the world wasn't messy, when everything was perfect. That's the norm. When I look at CNN, I looked at it this morning, and there's something I wouldn't even want to repeat, a news story that just 
breaks your heart. When I see that, I shouldn't just look down my nose and say, man, culture's lost. I should look at that and say, that's right. Culture is lost. I should be doing something about it. I was once lost myself and am now found. And I am supposed to be focused on going and trying to penetrate all that mess and bring some kind of good out of it somewhere. That's my mission field. I'm not supposed to point a finger at it and judge it as if it could be anything other than what it is. I love the quote by Sinclair Lewis. He says this, the problem with this country is, there's too many people going around saying the problem with this country is. There's not enough people actually going and trying to make a difference. I want to be a part of a church that's missional, that wants to make a difference. We're committed at Antioch to being missional. And I think that God is looking for some individuals and some communities that are still idealistic enough to think that they can change the world. That are still idealistic enough to pay it forward and to get the ball rolling, to be the first domino in some kind of a, of a change in Crook County or Deschutes County or Bend or Oregon or the United States or in Africa with the AIDS pandemic, or in Southeast Asia with all of the human trafficking and human rights issues. God is looking for a few people and communities and churches to still be idealistic enough to think that they can change the world. Because if it wasn't possible to change the world, God would not have told us to try. If it wasn't possible to change the world, God wouldn't have told us to try. Let's pray.